Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCRIT Podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to have a guest lecturer, and that guest lecturer is H. Pendle Myers. And now Pendle is about to be one of my resuscitation fellows, and you might be saying, well, why are you having a trainee lecture us on emergency critical care topics? Well, uh, Pendle has far exceeded his uh, current standing in the medical hierarchy in the area of EKGs and EKG interpretation and all things emergency cardiology. He's an acolyte of Steve Smith and has spent years developing an expertise on electrocardiograms and diagnosis of myocardial infarction far beyond his uh, current status. So he is well suited to be giving a lecture on this. Now, what you're going to hear is the actual lecture form of a document called the OMI Manifesto that has previously been published both on MCRIT and the Steve Smith EKG blog. And this document was incredibly well wrought, totally worth reading, and yet I bet most of you didn't read it. Now, why didn't you read it? Well, if you're uh, Generation X or Baby Boomer, it's because you're probably too busy with all the things that come from being in senescence and about to die. And if you're uh, a millennial or Generation Z, then you don't bother doing things like reading. Not even sure you know how, unless it's uh, in the form of short monosyllabic uh, text messages. So uh, you probably might have missed the OMI Manifesto. So you know, I know that you guys are more likely to listen or watch a lecture. So uh, Pendle put it into that form, and I think it's fantastic. Now, one thing I will say is uh, you're going to hear the new term, OMI, occlusion MI. And uh, we've been debating back and forth uh, what this term actually means uh, in terms of common usage. I mean, I think Pendle has a very crystalline idea of this term in his head, but the actual translation to uh, the banding about of this term uh, may actually expand what it means. Now, for me, um, I am using this term both to determine the final outcome of a patient. Uh, they had a cath and it demonstrated a complete or suspected at the time of the patient's acute presentation, a uh, complete occlusion uh, or high-grade occlusion of a coronary vessel. But it could also mean uh, the actual ECG findings that predicted that, an ECG suspicious of that uh, total or near total occlusion. So you might hand me an EKG and say, I think this is an OMI. And what you really mean is, I think this EKG is suspicious of a clinical state of acute coronary occlusion. And you will very easily and uh, almost uh, unwillingly uh, just get rid of all of that suspicious for or representative of and just say, this is an OMI ECG. That is not a bad thing, uh, but it may make things confusing uh, when you start really hearing the term in multiple different ways. Uh, you will get past that very quickly if you just consider OMI to be, for all intents and purposes, analogous in terms of its place in the uh, medical lexicon as STEMI. It's just a markedly improved version because it encompasses all of the other ECG findings that are representative of an acute coronary occlusion and yet don't meet the formal STEMI definition. Now, I might have confused you more than you were before I started this uh, brief diversion. So I probably should do now what I should have done in the first place, which is just get right to Pendle's lecture. And then if you have further questions afterwards, put them in the comments. All right, Scott Weingart handing it over to Pendle Myers. So the name of this talk is the OMI Manifesto, and this is an idea made by myself and two of my mentors. We wrote a 40-page document that's available for free online, and the gist of it 
is that our current paradigm of acute myocardial infarction is fundamentally flawed and has to be replaced just like it was the last time we replaced it, 20 years ago when we changed from the Q-wave, non-Q-wave MI to the STEMI versus in-STEMI paradigm. And we're presenting our idea for what to replace it with, and that is going to be occlusion MI, or OMI. Part 1. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. When our national guidelines for acute MI say that the ED and cardiology teams all did the right thing for this middle-aged man who died in my hospital of a left circumflex occlusion after a delayed cath for his in-STEMI. How do we reconcile the fact that this patient died of her RCA occlusion on the cath lab table 16 hours after presentation with chest pain, which is perfectly appropriate according to our guidelines, which have no alternative recommendations for patients with paced rhythms? How do we reconcile the fact that our current paradigm recommended non-emergent cath for this gentleman who died of a proximal LED occlusion in the emergency department 20 minutes after this EKG was done? How do we reconcile the fact that our current paradigm recommended a non-emergent cath for this in-STEMI patient who died less than two hours later of her RCA occlusion? What is the ACC AHA's response to this young man with LED occlusion who had a VF arrest in, in the ambulance while being transferred after the cath lab was deactivated appropriately according to the current guidelines, which have never bothered to study hyperacute T waves in the past 25 years? Why are these not false negatives in our paradigm? Why don't they feel like false negatives? The answer is because there is no false negative in our current um, acute MI paradigm. This is what I call the no false negative paradox. For every other vascular occlusion paradigm, you can clearly tell me what a false negative and a false positive means. <clears throat> For example, in the coronary occlusion paradigm we have now, there is such a thing as a false positive, and that is you thought it would be acute coronary occlusion based on the initial evaluation, and the patient has an EKG that shows STEMI criteria, but then the emergent cath showed no CAD at all, and the serial troponins were negative. That's a false positive by our current paradigm. Now, watch what happens when you force your brain to confront its own brainwashing when you try to explain what a false negative is in the STEMI and STEMI paradigm. What do you mean false negative STEMI? If it were negative for STEMI, then it would be in STEMI, and then it can't really be false, because in STEMI by itself doesn't merit emergent intervention just by definition of the guidelines. The false and false negative implies that you were looking for something and then you missed it. But in the STEMI in STEMI paradigm, you're not looking for any anatomic or clinical outcome. You're looking for a finding on a surrogate bedside test. So in our, in our current coronary artery occlusion paradigm, there is no false negative, no matter what the cast shows and no matter what happens to the patient. So take a look, for example, at this patient, and we'll see an example of the no false negative paradox. This is an EKG of a 60-year-old man who came to me with chest pain, started while he was lifting a box in his garage. His EKG doesn't show any signs of significant ST segment elevation or depressions, and it does not meet STEMI criteria. But because our team had seen a lot of examples of hyperacute T waves, we activated the cath lab because we were concerned for hyperacute T waves in the LED distribution. When he got to cath, here was his, um, proximal, his mid to proximal LED, which is occluded. And here's the full course 
after that occlusion was opened up. You can see that he has a total Q wave MI after this event, even has LV aneurysm morphology, but it's too early to tell whether he's truly going to develop an anatomic LV aneurysm. Back to his original EKG with his hyperacute T waves and the LED distribution. Here's a guy with an EKG that in 2018 has to be classified as an NSTEMI, who has a total acute LED occlusion. So who wants to randomize this patient to immediate versus delayed reperfusion? Because if you're unwilling to randomize this patient, it's because you know that he needs emergent reperfusion. And if you're unwilling to randomize the patient, then you've just discovered that you already don't agree with the current paradigm. Nobody would ever randomize this patient. It's obvious that he needs emergent reperfusion, but our guidelines tell us not to even look for this occlusion emergently. So this patient had a 100% LED occlusion, never met STEMI criteria, had a peak troponin T of 8.82, and for those of you with troponin I, that would be somewhere in the range of 80 to 90 for your troponin I, and he had a total anterior Q-wave MI, um, and may have had LV aneurysm morphology, but this is not a false negative in the STEMI and STEMI paradigm, because there's no such thing as a false negative. And that is the no false negative paradox. So when I give this talk, I'm starting to feel like the villain telling the good guys something they didn't want to hear. But it's something that's been obvious from the very beginning of the movie. But somehow we just didn't want to recognize it because it challenges our pre-existing ideas and makes us wonder, how did we never see this coming? The cath lab, the place where you go, the, the place with lots of dangers and one kind of benefit, the place where you go to emergently open up an acutely occluded coronary artery. Occlusion MI. The reason you go there. The outcome you're looking for when you take somebody there. The outcome you're hoping is not truly there when you withhold the cath lab from somebody. So this is the typical reaction to this information. And this was my reaction when I first heard this from my mentor Steve Smith on Dr. Smith's ECG blog. Here's a video of the typical reaction. And now here's me telling you something you didn't want to hear, something that makes things more complicated. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. All right, part two. How did it come to this? How did we arrive at this situation with a paradigm that doesn't make sense for what we're doing based on all of the other arterial occlusions? The answer is, the STEMI paradigm was made 25 years ago in an era without EKG expertise with no vascular intervention, no cath was even possible, and before it was even possible to diagnose acute coronary artery occlusion. And then it just never changed. So this is where all of the evidence stops. This is the 1994 FTT meta-analysis. That's fibrinolytic therapy trialis meta-analysis. This is where all of the randomized controlled literature regarding who needs emergent reperfusion stops. And this is an, a huge meta-analysis. This is almost 60,000 patients from nine trials in the 70s and 80s where they randomized patients with acute good story chest pain to get lytics or no lytics. There's the names of the trials at the bottom. These are all famous uh, groundbreaking cardiology trials. Because this is a meta-analysis, there's a lot of clinical heterogeneity in the trials and the designs. Some of them use different agents. This was a time when we didn't know what agent they were supposed to be using then. They had different trial designs. Some of them were placebo-controlled. Some of them were open-controlled. Um, because it was in the 70s and 80s before all the medications had 
their their sort of locked in indications. Some patients were still being randomized to get aspirin or not. Heparin was randomized in some trials and given to all the patients in other trials. The timing to onset was all different in the trials, and the timing to onset is really not the point of this talk. But that was obviously a very important, um, very important section of this of this literature. And these were usually patients that were younger than age seventy five. Like like the clinical stuff that was heterogeneous, the EKG criteria was also heterogeneous. Five of the nine trials didn't require an EKG at all. Like you didn't. There's no EKG changes required for being in the study. The other four of the nine did have some criteria you had to have to get into the study, but not all of them were even ST elevation. Some of them were ST elevation or depression. This one here is ST second shift. And, and then even of these four, no two of them are the same. Um, they all have different numbers, different leads, different amount of leads. Um, and none of them ever told you where they actually measured the ST segment. They never told you what the baseline was. So very different EKG criteria. When you took all 60,000 of these patients and you just threw their EKG out the window and just randomized them, no matter what their EKG showed, you didn't care about the EKG at all, this is what happened. There was a number needed to treat for to save a life for a mortality benefit of 56. That's like a 2% more absolute mortality difference. So my question is, why do you think this population overall, without even looking at EKGs, benefited from a dangerous artery opening therapy? The answer is obvious because some percentage of that group had acutely occluded arteries. Some percentage of them had occlusion MIs, and the thrombolytics helped those people. The other people, it all harmed, obviously, because there was even a 1% to 2% 24-hour um, death rate just from getting the thrombolytics. So then what they did is they broke this 60,000 patient population into subgroups according to the EKG findings. And the only findings they looked at were elevation, which is undefined and different in every study, versus ST depression, also undefined, and normal EKG, which is, would be neither of those other two. And what they found was they found a higher benefit in this population, the ST segment elevation subgroup, than the, subgroup, than the overall group that it came from. So my question for you now is, why do you think this population overall benefited more than the other two from artery opening therapy? The answer is still obvious, because now you've selected out a population or a subgroup with an even higher prevalence of occlusion, of occlusion MI. And so therefore, their benefit is better because you selected them out better. But it's not like this group has 100% occlusion rate and this group has zero. We see this every day in clinical practice. Many people who meet STEMI criteria end up having a false positive. Those people get no benefit from going to cath. They actually get only harm. Likewise, like the case I just showed you, we have normal EKGs, quote normal EKGs, which actually turn out to be have hyperacute T waves or acute coronary occlusion with less than one millimeter ST elevation, posterior occlusion, and all that kind of stuff. Those people have occlusion and have must have benefit from emergent reperfusion. So it's not whether you have elevation or not that, that determines whether you get benefit. It's whether you have an occlusion, the only thing that the treatment is designed for. Unfortunately, we're not here yet. Where we are is here because this is where we left off with the randomized controlled trial data. No study has ever been done randomized to, to show anything past this point. So the conclusion of this FET meta-analysis is just rock solid. I mean, nothing, almost nothing has been proven better in acute care medicine than this. And the conclusion is this. 
ST elevation is the best way to decide who to give thrombolytics to, assuming both of the following. Number one, you work in a world where cath just doesn't exist. You don't have cath. You can't figure out who has acute coronary artery occlusion by cath. Number two, you can't do any better at EKG interpretation than classifying the EKG as ST elevation, ST depression, or normal. If those two things are true, then I absolutely think you should just stop listening to the, to the talk and just keep using ST elevation. But as you can obviously see, most of, these, most of you listening, this doesn't apply to. So a lot of you work in places where there is cath, and every single one of you has a brain, and you can get better at figuring out inter EKG interpretation than classifying it only as ST elevation, ST depression, or neither. So it's not whether you have elevation or depression that determines whether you have mortality benefit when you can determine who actually has occlusion and who doesn't. So the FTT meta-analysis took us from the Q-wave, non-Q-wave MI paradigm, took us through the reperfusion era, and got us into what we have now, which is the STEMI versus the NSTEMI paradigm. So here I've done the painstaking work of tabulating the timeline and of these of these um, guidelines, and then what happening what's happening to the ST elevation criteria over here on the right in yellow. Blue is a guideline document. White, like here, here, and here is original data that's being cited by these guidelines to support their claim that we should use ST segment elevation criteria. So you can see here that from 1994 on, basically we started with one millimeter and then we just changed it to, we, we up, up the millimeter in V1 through V3. 2004, we went back down to one millimeter everywhere. 2007, we added a male-female difference for V2 and V3. 2009, we had what we still have today, which is a male and female and an age difference for V2 and V3. And since then, every guideline has had the same set of criteria since 2009. Even the one we, the new guidelines we just got two months ago um, in 2018 were the same based on 2009. So the only randomized controlled trial evidence for all this time is the FTT meta-analysis. The other things that they're pointing to here are these three studies. So it, it, it's worth going through these a little bit to understand how the evidence is so weak for what they're talking about. McFarlane, age, sex, ST segment, and ST segments. This is like 1,400 normal, healthy people walking down the street who get an EKG, and then they just tabulate how much ST elevation they have in, in each lead, and they show you, based on gender and age, what happens with that normal ST elevation. They just give you a table of normal. And using that, they're, they're trying to say that, hey, we should increase the voltage criteria in V1 through V3 because people have elevation there that are just normal, healthy elevation. <clears throat> the other two, McFarlane 2004 and Minown 2000, have the same study design. And what they did is this. They took a stack of normal, healthy people with their EKGs, and they took another stack of people that came in to the emergency department with chest pain. Um, and then they put them all together and they do reverse, they do logistical regression to figure out if they can find ST segment criteria that predict positive biomarkers. So that's wrong because we don't need a paradigm to tell us who's going to have positive biomarkers. We can just order the biomarkers and look at the answer on the computer. We're not making a decision based on the positive biomarkers later on. It's not positive biomarkers who needs to go to the cath lab. It is people who have occlusion.
And by the time the biomarkers are going up, you've already missed part of your window. So these studies are irrelevant to decide who needs emergent reperfusion because we're not trying to the EKG is not trying to predict positive biomarkers. It's trying to predict who needs the the intervention. So after all of that, the 25 years of guidelines, the only way to explain what we've been doing, the only way to explain our activity and our lack of progression in the past 25 years is that we have to have made one of the following two assumptions. Number one, STEMI criteria predicts acute coronary occlusion accurately. If you don't believe that, then you have to believe number two. Even if STEMI criteria doesn't accurately predict acute coronary artery occlusion, then the in-STEMIs with occlusions just don't benefit from emergent reperfusion therapy. You have to believe one of these two things or else you can't, you can't support the thing we've been doing for the past 25 years. So let's look at these assumptions. Number one, STEMI predicts acute coronary occlusion accurately. This is objectively false. And the answer is that it's false in about 25% in both directions. So what I mean by that is we have about a 25% false positive rate when we call STEMI activations, just nationally if you look at the databases. We also have a 25% miss rate when it comes to people we admit to the hospital calling in STEMIs with a positive troponin. About 25% of those people will have a total thrombotic occlusion found on their delayed catheterization. So let's go through the evidence of this. Schmidt et al., this is CHEST 2001. We have a prospective cohort um, enrolled with acute myocardial infarction by positive biomarkers, had to come in within 12 hours of onset of pain, and they all got angiography looking for a thrombotically occluded infarct-related vessel. They excluded abnormal QRS complex, and they analyzed based on the current criteria. <laughs> Interestingly enough, they used magnifying lenses to look at the ST elevation, and even with the magnifying lenses, they only found 74% of their cohort of occlusions met STEMI criteria. So they had 418 patients with occlusion out of this 1,788 population. 74% of these occlusions had STEMI criteria. And now they break it down for you by artery over here. You can see that the circumflex has the biggest miss rate with about half of them missed. And the LED and the RCA have a lower miss rate, somewhere in the range of 15, 20, 25%. Next study, Wong et al. This is an American Heart Journal, 2009. It's a post hoc analysis of the Paragon B platelet trial. So this is a almost 2,000 in-STEMI patients who are undergoing this study about this platelet inhibitor. As part of the protocol, every patient gets coronary angiography. <clears throat> and then so they're going to look retrospectively and see who had total occlusion on their calf. They had uh, 1,957 in-STEMI patients. 27% of those people had 100% occluded culprit vessels. They all got calf three days later. So this is way, way too late to do anything about their acute coronary artery occlusion. The outcomes have already happened. And of those, um, of those patients, 27% had missed occlusions. And despite the fact that they had the same treatment in hospital because they're in an RCT, patients with an occluded culprit artery had larger infarcts and higher risk-adjusted six-month mortality. They obviously had higher troponins. And they have a, a higher mortality. So the occlusion in STEMIs had a mortality rate of 5% at 100 days. Non-occlusion STEMIs had only 3%. That's 2% overall mortality, absolute mortality difference. The number needed to kill of 50. Miss 50, uh, one person in the study died. From et al., this is American Journal of Cardiology, 2010. 
it's a post hoc analysis of a prospective database. They just went through their database and they, until they found 1,500 people who had their definition of occlusion, which was Timmy 0 through 2. I would normally argue that Timmy 0 to 1 would be a better definition, but that's what we have in the study to work with. So even knowing from the beginning that these 1,500 patients all had confirmed occlusion, only 72% of their population met STEMI criteria, even if they already knew they already knew they had occlusion. 28% did not, and they have a similar breakdown by artery. So a lot of circumflex misses, and then roughly 20% in the RCAs and the LEDs. Pride et al. Uh, Jack Cardiovascular Interventions, 2010. They used the Triton Timmy 38 trial, which is a presubral uh, RCT, and they enrolled 13,608 patients in the trial. Of that, they took a subset. So they found the people in their trial. The whole trial was NSTEMIs. They all had to have NSTEMIs. So they looked for the, the people in the trial that had isolated anterior depression in leads V1 through V4. So imagine this cohort. We have NSTEMIs. They all have isolated anterior depressions. So there were um, 1,198 patients that had those depressions. And of those patients, 314, 26.2%, had an occluded culprit artery, Timmy's 0 to 1, at the time of angiography. Obviously, most of those people were the occluded um, uh, left circumflex artery, about half, like always, like we always keep seeing. So look over here on the death side of this graph. Red means that you had the occlusion, Timmy 0 to 1. The mortality in that group in hospital was 1.6%. If you did not have an occlusion, your mortality was one-fourth of that, which was 0.4%. So that's the difference between having an occlusion in STEMI and an in STEMI without occlusion, just the in-hospital rate of mortality. Con et al., this one's, this one's probably the, the biggest, most important one, European Heart Journal 2017. This is a meta-analysis of all studies that had um, what I just showed you, basically, were prospective observational studies or post-hoc analyses of RCTs that enrolled in STEMI patients and then f did the cath on all of them and then looked to see who had occlusions and who didn't. So they have seven studies made it in here, and the only one of the seven we've already talked about is, is Wong 2009. We've talked about that one. The other ones are all new. So they have a total of 40,777 in STEMIs, massive number. Of those, 25.5% had total occlusions 24 hours later on their delayed cath. The occlusions died more often, and of the survivors, the occlusions did worse. Now I'm going to show you each individual study of those seven. I'm going to show you the mortality rates, the absolute mortality rates that they found in their trials. So Dixon et al., the biggest one to study, 30,386 NSTEMIs. If you had your, your NSTEMI with an occlusion, your in-hospital mortality was 2.5 versus 1.4 if you had your NSTEMI without an occlusion despite the fact that the occlusions were 15 years younger and had less comorbidities. Wong et al., like we saw, 1957 in STEMIs, their six-month mortality was almost double if you had your occlusion with, if you had your in STEMI with an occlusion versus without an occlusion. This is, again, despite the fact that the occlusion group was younger. Barman et al., 448 in STEMIs with double the 30-day and six-month mortality. Kim et al., 2,000 NSTEMIs with quadruple the one-year mortality if you had your NSTEMI with an occlusion. Shin et al., almost 2,900 NSTEMIs with almost double the two-month mortality. Karwowski, 2,767 NSTEMIs with almost double the one-month mortality and double the in-hospital mortality. 
last study in this in this group is Koyama et al. Fascinating study where they essentially just decided to radically change their entire their entire chest pain protocol to this. They basically say that if you came in with acute coronary syndrome and your electrocardiographic abnormalities or your symptoms did not respond to anti-ischemic therapy within 20 minutes, then you just went immediately to cath 20 minutes after arrival if you didn't respond, no matter what your EKG showed. So during this time period, they have 279 STEMIs and 125 NSTEMIs. Of the 125 NSTEMIs they took to cath, they found TIMI0, or total occlusion, in 47% of those NSTEMIs. And this is a fascinating table. So look, here you have NSTEMIs, here you have STEMIs, here you have TIMI flow grade 0, 1, 2, 3. What you'd want to see if the STEMI and STEMI paradigm was a good paradigm for detecting acute coronary occlusion is you'd want to see all the TIMI zeros and ones on this side of the chart, and all and this side would have all the TIMI twos and threes and, and whatever. Instead, you have basically the same patients. I mean, these numbers are not different. And what it means is the STEMI and STEMI paradigm did nothing to determine who had occlusions and non-occlusions in this group. <clears throat> The people, the STEMIs and NSTEMIs had the same rate of occlusion, basically. They have the same time to calf. They all went emergently. And not surprisingly, they all had the same mortality outcomes. So you've just seen that assumption number one, STEMI predicts acute coronary occlusion accurately, is wrong. Um, and wrong in 25% in both directions. Now, back to assumption number two. Okay, so even if STEMI doesn't predict occlusion, then NSTEMI occlusions just don't matter, and they just don't need emergent treatment. This is obviously wrong. You've just seen that they have double the mortality as if you had your NSTEMI without an occlusion. And like I said a long time ago, this just goes against your obvious common sense and doesn't have any supporting evidence. Remember this patient that we talked about who has the hyperacute T waves and the LAD occlusion. This patient in 2018 has to be classified according to our best current available evidence, which would say that he has a, quote, normal EKG and therefore he should get mortality harm, according to the FDT meta-analysis. But you and I both know that he's not actually a patient who gets harm. He is a patient who has a normal EKG in this category, which is actually hyperacute T waves with an occlusion MI, and the patient obviously gets benefit from the intervention. No one's willing to randomize this patient because that's a dumb idea, and you can't do this study. You cannot randomize a patient with a total LED occlusion to just not get an intervention if he's symptomatic from the occlusion. Right, let's do some more examples. A patient, a female in her 60s who presents with chest pain for one hour. Here's the EKG. She had a very concerning story to the team, and despite the fact that this, this EKG doesn't, doesn't warrant any, um, any emergent therapy, they were very worried and they got a repeat EKG. And here's the repeat. So I'm going to toggle back and forth, and you can see the differences between the baseline, or not the baseline, the initial presentation EKG and the repeat. So in comparison, the T waves and the inferior leads have have increased in amplitude. The flip T wave and AVL has, has increased in, in, in negative amplitude as, as a reciprocal change. And uh, so let's see those two. We're going to toggle back and forth. Here's the baseline. See these T waves? And then look how much bigger that T wave has gotten. It's symmetric. It's fat. It's broad. It's hyperacute. It's too big for this QRS complex. And the AVL proves it as well. So this T wave has increased in negative area, signifying a negative hyperacute T wave. Now look in V2. 
The first one, the ST segment, is pretty much at baseline. On repeat, now the ST segment is depressed. So that's that's posterior occlusion MI happening there as well. So inferior posterior occlusion MI until proven otherwise. So the code H, which is our form of um, STEMI activation, was canceled. And this is appropriate according to our guidelines because code H equals STEMI. So here's the repeat EKG done somewhere in the cardiology unit. Um, it's actually a right-sided EKG. That's why these leads look like this. And you can see the, the T waves have continued to increase in amplitude. Now there's a little bit of elevation there, a little bit of ST depression in AVL with that still negative hyperacute T wave. There's actually hyperacute T waves on the right side leads over here as well. Um, so while she's in the holding area, cath lab holding, she gets transient complete heart block and hypotensive requiring a transvenous pacemaker and pressors. So they get her into the cath lab and they find her total RCA occlusion. And here's the full course of the RCA after being opened up. The peak troponin T was 3. So for troponin I folks, so that's going to be like 30 roughly. And here's the repeat EKG showing you that those T waves truly were hyperacute um, and represented the inferior um, occlusion MI. But of course, in 2018, this is an NSTEMI. Um, so who wants to randomize this NSTEMI to get immediate treatment versus delayed treatment. Obviously not a good idea for this patient. Another case, a man in his 80s with chest pain and he had just had a recent, like a fresh LED stent weeks or maybe a month ago, comes into the ED with this EKG. There's some elevation in V2, maybe a millimeter. There's some elevation in one in AVL. In AVL, it's, probably, it's definitely a millimeter. And one, it probably is not a full millimeter. There's reciprocal ST depression in 2-3 AVF. By our current guidelines, this is an NSTEMI and does not warrant emergent management. Of course, the team was worried about it because they can obviously see that this is an occlusion MI. Um, and 20 minutes later, one minute before he suffers a cardiac arrest and can't be resuscitated, he has this EKG, which shows a new right bundle, a new left anterior fascicular block. Um, there's more elevation in V2 and one in AVL. I, because of this wandering baseline, I, I'm still not sure whether it's a full millimeter there. So I, it either might be a very subtle positive STEMI, or it might not It might might not quite meet the elevation to call it a STEMI. Either way, do you want to wait until this patient meets full STEMI criteria, if he even ever did? Or would you like to have that 20-minute head start before he dies? So this was a presumed, I can't promise you that this patient died of LED occlusion, but I'll submit to you that it's obvious that that's, the, that's what happened. Um, he never met STEMI criteria until maybe one minute before his death. So wouldn't you, or would you still like to wait for the STEMI criteria to turn positive in this case? Next, we have a 54-year-old man with chest pain, episodic over three days. Here's his EKG. I was worried about these T waves and inferior leads that have some area underneath them and have this reciprocal change here in AVL with ST depression and the negative fat T wave. There's also inappropriate ST depression in lead one. This tiny QRS should not have this amount of ST depression there. That's not reciprocally correct. V2 is also very suspicious. Although the J point may be at baseline, there's qu there's quickly downsloping ST segment elevate, uh, ST segment depression with a negative T wave that implies to me that there's posterior involvement with this. So the baseline would be very helpful, right? Here's the baseline. You can see that all those changes we just talked about are completely new compared to the presentation EKG. So all those T waves and inferior leads at baseline are a little bit negative actually and AVL is positive. Now they're huge fat positive T waves down here in the inferior leads with new ST second depression V2. It's actually new elevation in V1 as well, which is the right-sided 
the right-sided lead. So he went for emergent cath, and here is his total RCA occlusion. Here is the occlusion after it got opened up. There's the full course of his RCA. And here is his uh, post-intervention EKG. So you can see that his T waves have deflated because they were obviously truly hyperacute. And now he has the expected reperfusion progression of terminal T wave inversions in the infected leads, um, which will progress to full T wave inversions. So if this was a patient with a, quote, normal EKG by our current criteria who had uh, an occlusion MI with hyperacute T waves. Next case, we have a 49-year-old with hypertension presenting for epigastric abdominal pain and belching. Started while snow blowing. This is my patient. I remember this case very well. I remember coming into this patient's room, seeing this ST elevation here, which is very easy to see to the eye. It may be a millimeter there, but it's just certainly not in any contiguous leads. The T wave and AVL is negative. Um, it's very convincing to me for an occlusion MI. So, So I remember sitting at the bedside for like 15 minutes, pressing the button, the EKG button over and over, just trying to get one EKG that would meet their STEMI criteria, but I just, it just could not, it just would not meet STEMI criteria. So there ended up being a delay, and the patient finally went to the cath lab and had 100% thrombotic left circumflex occlusion. The troponin T went from 0 to 11 in the course of about 12 hours. Um, and this was his original EKG. And um, as you can see, the patient has, it doesn't have STEMI criteria, so it has to be a normal EKG um, that ended up having ST uh, elevation less than one millimeter with an acute coronary artery occlusion. Next case, or actually a pair of cases, this happened at my hospital. It was such a good example that I, I had to pair these together. So two patients came in with chest pain to the hospital within the same hour. We had a 50-year-old man with chest pain and an EKG that does not meet STEMI criteria. And we have a 50-something-year-old female with a chest pain and an EKG that does meet STEMI criteria and inferior leads. So you can, uh, because I'm using this as an example, you can obviously tell what's going to happen here. The 50-year-old female with a STEMI EKG had her angiogram immediately and had normal vessels everywhere with no signs of any um, CAD at all. The 50-year-old male who has this EKG, which is concerning but doesn't meet STEMI criteria, ended up having a delay to their cath, and a total RCA occlusion. And there's the full course of the RCA now. All right, so part three, the power of the name. Why does the name have to change itself? It's a very catchy name. We're very familiar with the term STEMI. So why do we have to change this? So for the past 15 years, the community of people who understand the problems with the STEMI paradigm have been trying to improve this situation without challenging the STEMI paradigm, without challenging the name. Because it's just too catchy, it's too familiar, it's too ingrained in what we do. So they made up terms like STEMI equivalent, like subtle STEMI, and other things like that. But unfortunately, all of these things have failed. There's just zero mutual understanding between emergency medicine and cardiology about what constitutes a STEMI equivalent and what the expectation and the management should be for that patient. They're not only informally um, rejected. These are these terms have formally been rejected and redacted from our guidelines. So this is the only time any STEMI equivalent language or any other similar language is mentioned in our current American STEMI guidelines. And they say it's a thing that used to exist. So they used to say new or presumably new left bundle has been considered a STEMI equivalent. 
However, this should not be considered diagnostic anymore, and this was sort of redacted from the guidelines. This is the only time that we have any language about stimuliquilin in our guidelines that exist right now in 2018. So we tried for years to make it STEMI plus STEMI equivalent versus NSTEMI, but this has failed. And now we have no easier option left than to expose the problems with the current paradigm. And instead of trying to get around the word STEMI without fixing it, we have to go through the word STEMI to find the next step of the acute MI paradigm. And like I said, I'm actually convinced that the name STEMI itself is part of the problem. So what's so bad about this word, STEMI? Number one, it makes you think that the ST segments are all that matter. Look at this case. The patient comes in, had chest pain before arrival, and then 20 minutes you know, in the ambulance or whatever, the chest pain stopped, and now they're pain-free. So this EKG is relatively normal. There's no signs of STEMI. There's no signs of subtle occlusion that I would, that I would talk about in this EKG. So he gets admitted for high-risk chest pain, and his pain comes back at 10.35 that night while he's in the, the cardiac unit. So now he's got increased area under his T-waves uh, compared with the prior. So it's very subtle. Um, at 11 p.m., 30 minutes later, he receives morphine and all of a sudden feels better, presumably because of the morphine. But his EKG at that time tells a different story, which is exploding volume under these hyperacute T-waves with reciprocal findings. Clearly, to people that know how to read EKGs, this is an LED occlusion but it doesn't meet STEMI criteria, and he doesn't get to go to the cath lab yet. Five hours later, presumably after the morphine wears off at 4.30 a.m., he has ongoing pain, so they, they get another EKG, and this one's clearly, obviously a STEMI. And now he goes to the cath lab six hours after uh, pain onset, and he has his total LED occlusion discovered. Here's the LED in a different view, occluded there, and after their intervention, there's the full course of the LED. After reperfusion, they get this EKG, which shows the expected course of decreased, like a deflated T waves, because they're no longer hyperacute, um, with terminal T wave inversion. And looks like a lot of R wave has been lost, especially in this high lateral area. No more R wave there. Q wave MI. Back to the EKG that was one, after, one hour after onset of pain, the one that I want you to learn from. This is obvious hyperacute T waves um, that signifies acute total LED occlusion. So this patient had 100% mid-LED occlusion. There was six hours that expired from between onset of his pain to positive STEMI criteria, and his peak troponin was 4.67, uh, the troponin T. But this is not emergent until STEMI criteria become positive because our paradigm isn't called hyperacute T-wave MI. When you define an entire management paradigm around the ST segment, it shouldn't come as any surprise to you that the vast majority of clinicians who are making the reperfusion decision have no idea that something other than the ST segment might matter. We don't call it hyperacute T-wave MI, and therefore the vast majority of these people can't recognize hyperacute T-waves. That's a fault of the paradigm, not of the clinicians. Next case, this is a 50-something-year-old man who was transferred to our facility from an outside facility. They, they, called the, they activated the cath lab based on a good story and based on the EKG findings in this EKG. So... Um, because because this does not meet STEMI criteria with its hyperacute T waves and V3, 4, 5, um, the cath lab was canceled because that's what our cath lab activation is in 2018. Um, so he has a V-fib arrest in the ambulance on the way here, and uh, they shock him out of it. He's still alert, 
and has the same EKG, a repeat EKG was done that still doesn't show any STEMI. And he goes to cath lab and he has an LED lesion. And this view, it looks like it might be Timmy one flow there. Uh, in this view, it looks pretty much totally occluded, but um, either way, he has an acute lesion in his LED that is causing his chest pain, causing his EKG findings, and caused him to have a V-fib arrest. Here's his open artery after the intervention. Here's the EKG after the intervention, showing that these T waves truly were hyperacute, and now they're deflating. So this patient had an instemi with a total LED occlusion or near occlusion, um, a V-fib arrest, but this is not a false negative in our paradigm because of the false negative paradox. Number two on my list of why STEMI has to go. STEMI makes you think that the ST segments don't depend on the preceding QRS complexes, and nothing could be further from the truth. Everything on the EKG is relative. So here's a patient with a left bundle branch block, comes in with chest pain. There is massive amounts of ST elevation, V1, 2, and especially V3, eight millimeters of elevation there, um, if you count it out. But it's a normal finding in this patient because of the massive um, J wave, a massive um, S wave in this lead, in the lead with big voltage left bundle. Left bundle is an abnormal depolarization and must always cause abnormal repolarization. And the amount of that is always proportional. And that follows the, the term um, appropriate discordance. So this is the appropriate amount of discordance uh, compared to this QRS complex. I've done studies where I take hundreds of normal people without chest pain or acute coronary occlusion who have left bundle, and I just quantified how much ST elevation or depression they have. And the answer was it's about 10 to 15% of the preceding complex. Here's the opposite example. Here's a patient with very small voltage and a lead like lead three, and then a T wave that is way too big for this small voltage QRS complex. You look to the reciprocal to see if that's true. AVL, small, normal, tight, uh, normal QRS complex with ST depression, way out of proportion for a normal QRS, with a big, straight, um, fat, negative T wave, which is the reciprocal of this T wave. Lead one also has the same findings. V2 and V3 have ST depression and negative T wave, which is signifying the posterior involvement in this inferior-posterior occlusion MI. The patient had 100% thrombotic occlusion of the right circumflex, the right uh, coronary artery. Um, and these two cases just go to show you that it's all relative. Here's 9 millimeters of ST elevation, which is totally normal. And here's half a millimeter, which is totally, totally abnormal and indicates occlusion. Number three on my list of why STEMI has to go. STEMI makes you think that occlusion can't possibly be diagnosed in an, in an abnormal QRS complex. Here's a lady in her 60s who comes in with fatigue and shortness of breath. She has a pacemaker. You can see here that these proportions, this amount of elevation is just out of control compared to this QRS complex. This is about 100% of this QRS complex, way too much. These ratios should never exist at that baseline. They're backed up by reciprocal depression there and there. Um, so this patient, and even laterally out here, there's, there's bad ratios. So this patient has, again, infer, inferior, and probably more, inferior OMI until proven otherwise. Of course, because she's a pacemaker, there's no such thing as STEMI. So she's diagnosed with an NSTEMI and scheduled for cath in the morning. Overnight, the troponins rise, and the patient has a V-fib arrest and codes at 7.45 a.m. She's shocked out and immediately brought to the cath lab, where she is found to have a completely occluded proximal circumflex. They suck out the thrombus um, with a good angiographic result. However, the patient continues to deteriorate um, and expires on the table. Here's her EKG again paced rhythm, 
obvious occlusion MI if you know what to look for. 100% RCA occlusion, there's a 12-hour delay to diagnosis of her occlusion MI because there's no such thing as STEMI in a pace rhythm, and this patient expired. So when we were thinking about how to replace this paradigm, what word to replace it with, we had to come up with a term that reminds you what you're actually looking for, which is occlusion, and we had to make sure the term avoided all these problems that the word STEMI has. So what we came up with is OMI, or occlusion MI. So look at what this word look at what this word does for you. It doesn't say anything about the ST segments. It doesn't brainwash you into thinking that you can reliably diagnose one of the most important events in all of medicine by millimeter criteria. It solves the no false negative paradox. Part four. So now what? I just proposed something crazy. I'm proposing that we go from the STEMI and STEMI paradigm to the OMI versus NOMI, or non-occlusion MI paradigm. But I'm not crazy. I know that this took a whole era. This took 30 years and amazing, amazing um, research and, and um, meta-analyses to show this. And that's how long it took to get from this paradigm to this one. And I know that it's going to take a whole nother, another paradigm and lots of years and, 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 and uh, education and research to get there. But I think that that era, when it happens, should be called the occlusion reperfusion era. And after that era, I think this is what we might be left with. If we have a patient who comes in with clinical concern of ACS, then we're going to perform a focused and expert history physical skilled EKG interpretation and bedside ultrasound looking for wall motion abnormalities. From those findings, if the patient has a pre-cath probability of occlusion MI, that exceeds our agreed-upon threshold, then the patient warrants emergent cath. And if they don't, then they don't warrant emergent cath. Um, at the end of the patient's course, they will be classified just like they are now. So if they have negative cardio cardiac biomarkers but had ECS, then they, that patient had unstable angina. If they have positive biomarkers, then that patient had a myocardial infarction. And then you have to adjudicate based on angiographic biomarker, EKG results, and all that stuff whether the patient had an occlusion MI versus a non-occlusion MI. So what am I supposed to do until then? That's going to be a long way off. So what am I telling you that we should do in the meantime? Number one, start using these words. Start giving this some thought. Start thinking about the terms acute coronary occlusion and occlusion MI. When you have that next STEMI or NSTEMI patient in front of you, imagine what it would be like if the paradigm aligned with what actually matters whether or not the patient needs to go immediately to the lab to open up an occlusion or a near occlusion. Imagine what it would be like if this paradigm were like all of the other paradigms that you do involving acute coronary artery, acute artery occlusions. Number two, in the meantime, get good at the EKG. The EKG isn't everything, but when it comes to occlusion MI, it can be very, very accurate in the hands of experts. So ideally, everybody would just simply become experts at EKG interpretation. But this takes years and years of specialized practice and just isn't doable because we have to be good at everything else too. Luckily, um, we're making it easier for you by going to Dr. Smith's ECG blog where we have spent years collecting and posting cases. We have almost a 1,000 cases with detailed EKG interpretation right alongside their cath results and the patient's clinical outcomes. We've been teaching the full progression of EKG findings of acute coronary occlusion and reperfusion with and reocclusion. We've been publishing rules designed to predict occlusion MI in various populations. 
So for example, I can't write down criteria for everything on an EKG, but I ha we have published certain things in certain situations like left bundle. We have rules for this that predict OMI. A pace rhythm, we're coming out with that. We have all these publications that have specific scenarios where we can publish something that shows you how to find occlusion MI. Number three, in the meantime, research like you care about occlusions. When you do research, still tell us who had STEMIs and NSTEMIs, um, but remember, that's not an outcome. That's not a patient outcome. Those are preliminary guesses as to whether the patient has the outcome you're looking for. So you have to tell us what the angiographic outcomes were. Tell us the troponins. Tell us what happened to the patient in their clinical course. So 30 years from now, your paper is going to be worthless unless it tells us what actually happened to the patient. So imagine if I handed you right now a paper that talked about divided everything into Q-wave versus non-Q-wave MI. That's useless to you now because they told you something that was based on a prior paradigm that is not the real outcome of the patient that you care about. The same thing is going to be true of your NSTEMI-STEMI paper 30 years from now when we realize that those aren't the outcomes that we care about. Finally, remember your real goal. Remember that there are reasons to activate the cath lab other than just EKG findings. In addition to clinical history with extremely pre high pretest probability for acute coronary occlusion, there are other clinical features that require emergent cath lab activation. These are things like ischemia refractory to maximal medical management, ischemia causing cardiogenic shock, electrical instability, and so on. So if you believe a patient has a problem in their coronary artery causing them to be unstable, then you must rule out the most common, most treatable cause of that instability. Take it from somebody who cares a lot about EKGs. It's not all about the EKGs. The only reason we care about the EKG is because we care about the patient. So care about the patient and start caring whether they have an occlusion MI. Thank you.